All right. Praise be to God. Live. Live well. Be healthy. Grow big. May you live 100 years. These are blessings that people say and deliver all uh, around the world, from Russia to China um, to uh, Hindus, those in Arabic countries. These are blessings that people issue. Live 100 years. That's my favorite one. These are blessings people give after people sneeze. Has anybody ever wondered why when you sneeze, you are given an automatic guaranteed divine blessing? These are things that plague me through the week. So um, throughout history, there have been a couple, really two main, I found two main reasons that we give divine blessing after people sneeze. One is because there, has, there have been times, and perhaps in various parts of the world, maybe this is still believed, that, that um, a sneeze was the body expelling an evil spirit. So you sneeze, the exorcism is complete, and um, you issue a divine blessing, okay? That's real. That's a real thing. Um, other times, perhaps during a plague, when you sneezed, um, God bless you. Because you sneeze in the morning, and you might be out of here in the evening, okay? We all know this. You and I can relate, unfortunately, more than ever to that reality. Because now, when you cough, right, it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Um, we, just don't, we just don't issue blessing anymore for that. It's more of like a curse. Like, why are you with me right now? Um, we, we love to, get, to give blessings in the face of something potentially very bad. But here's the question. Um, how do you know you're blessed? I mean, we say, you hear God bless you, but you don't, in that moment when you sneeze and you hear God bless you, you don't go, oh, praise God, you know? Um, how do you know you are blessed? How are you assured in life? that you are blessed by God. That, that verbiage is widely used. We say this all the time. How you doing? Oh, I'm blessed. You know, you check out at HEB, you tell the bagger thank you, and what do you hear? God bless. We sign emails, blessings, you know. You get art from Mardell's, I'm too blessed to be stressed, you know, on your coffee mug, whatever. Before dinner, what do you say? A blessing, Right? What is a blessing, though? What does it mean to be blessed? And further, how do you know you're blessed? If you are blessed, how can you be assured of it? How can you live in the assurance that you are blessed? Psalm 32 answers that. Psalm 32 gives us the pathway to assurance of blessing. I know I'm blessed. I live in the assurance and the rest that I am blessed. So if you would, please stand with me and let's read this somewhat short psalm, Psalm 32, together. Psalm 32, verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. 
I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. All right, David starts where we all want to be. It doesn't matter this morning what you believe, what your background is, what your religion is. It doesn't matter. David starts where we want to be, where everyone wants to be, blessed. Verse 1, blessed is the one. Verse 2, blessed is the man. It doesn't matter who you are, you want to be there. You want to know, you can say, I am blessed. The question is, how did David, the author of this psalm, arrive there? How did he get there to that place of blessing, knowing that he was blessed? That is precisely what the rest of the psalm is going to show us. And it starts in the complete opposite place. Really, the first verses, which we're going to come back to, are kind of the climax of the psalm. And right after them, he starts in the exact opposite place. Look at verse 3 of what he says of himself. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through groaning, through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. David is here feeling the effects of his sin. The effect, the palpable effect of his sin and of his guilt before God, where he says, I feel like my bones are wasting away. I feel like I am stranded in a desert, sitting under the sun, laying under the sun just just being scorched, groaning all day long. I feel not the blessing of God on me, but his, his divine hand of judgment. His hand is not light on me, not carrying me. His hand is heavy on me. Weak, baking in the desert. That's what he feels. He knows, David knows here, his sin and his guilt deep in his bones, deep in his Heart. And it's not just intellectual assent. This isn't just like, I know I'm a, sin- a sinner, and it's just mental, theory, intellectual assent. This is knowing I am sinful and I am guilty, and something needs to be done about it or else. This is knowing it and caring about it. Caring about it above everything else in life. To the point that he feels like he's wasting away trying to figure out what to do. It's the result not also, it's not just the result of knowing his sin and guilt and caring about it. But there's a key in these verses that shows us exactly why he feels like he's wasting away under his sin and guilt. And it's in verse 3. Look at the beginning of verse 3 again. He says, for when I kept silent. For when I kept silent about my sin and guilt, this was how I felt. Baking in the desert weak, wasting away, feeling like God's hand of judgment was heavy upon me. This is David knowing his sin, 
trying to deal with it on his own, trying to cover it on his own, trying to deal with his sin and his guilt and his transgressions and his iniquity all by himself. And so he's silent before God. He's silent before others. Why is he silent? Because he doesn't want any sin to have to confess. He he doesn't want to have any sin to talk about. He doesn't want to have any guilt to talk about. He's trying to deal with it on his own so that he has nothing to acknowledge before God. He has nothing to acknowledge before other people. I'm not really guilty, or I am guilty, but I think I can work around it. I can cover it. I can deal with it where I have nothing to say. I have nothing to confess. I have nothing to acknowledge before God or anybody else. This is what is going on in his life, but he was unable to do it. He was unable to deal with his sin. He was unable to deal with his iniquity, to cover it. God's law, the law that David knew, and the law that is written on his conscience, and it's written on your conscience, that you and I know was unrelenting. It wouldn't let him come up for air. As he's trying to cover it, deal with it, the law kept saying, no, 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 you're guilty. You're unworthy. You are a sinner. The law was uh, uh, unrelenting in his life. He couldn't get away from it. He couldn't get away from the sense that I am a guilty sinner, unworthy of blessing. I don't feel blessed. I feel the heavy hand of God's judgment on my life. And there is no internal conflict like this if you know it, if you've experienced it, if you've tasted it. Am I blessed by God or am I cursed? What is my status before God? Am I justified? Am I welcome? Am I in? Is he smiling upon me? Is he carrying me? Or is it a heavy hand of judgment on me? There's no internal conflict like this. And this is how this plagues Christians. There is one question that can plague Christians. We've already really said it, but we'll say it like this. Am I saved? Am I blessed? Same thing. Am I blessed by God? Am I saved? How do I know I'm saved? How can I be assured of God's blessing and my salvation? Am I blessed by God or am I cursed? Blessed is the one. Blessed is the man. Blessed is the woman. Is that me? Is that me? I feel like it's everyone around me this morning at Redeemer. Is that me, though? Can I count myself in that group as well? Can I have confidence before God? Can I have confidence when I pray? Can I have joy Can I rejoice? Can I sing with happiness about who God is? Or do I sing in fear of his heavy hand uh, on me? Is God holding my sin against me? Has he really forgiven me? Has Jesus really paid it all for me as we sang? Is my sin really washed away? Has it really been made white as snow? This question can plague Christians where we feel just like David in verse 3, where we feel like, Life is groaning all day long. I feel like I'm wasting away, just baking in the heat of the desert. It's hard to pray. I don't feel, as David says in the psalm, like God is my hiding place, like he's preserving me. It's hard to go to him. I just don't know if I can have confidence before, before him. Often this question can come from within. I have sinned so bad. I have done something so unthinkable, something I thought I was, beat, I was past. I was more mature than that in the Christian life. How could I do that? Am I saved? Do I know God at all? Sometimes that question can come from within. A lot of times it can come from those outside of us. You did what? 
you're still struggling with that, are you sure you're saved? You know, you wouldn't want to be a, a false convert. So sometimes it can come from without. The way this question gets answered in your life and in, in our life will send us into wildly different directions. There are two main roads. One of the main roads that is traveled today by people desperate for good news, desperate to answer that question with I'm blessed, can go like this. Some, maybe some of you have been led down this road. It can go like this. How do you know that you're saved? How do you know you're blessed? Well, just look for the marks of salvation in your life. Just look for the mark of salvation. So you go, okay, all right, I can do that. I'll look for the mark of salvation. So we respond and we go, I'll take some spiritual inventory and I'll start looking around, but just quick question, what's the mark of salvation? What is the mark? What am I looking for to rest assured under God's blessing? And so we're giving the answer, well, Christian maturity, of course. Christian maturity, well, okay, all right, I'll look for Christian maturity. What is Christian maturity? Well, it's obedience, of course. Obedience to God's law, obedience to God's commands. The, so we think, okay, well, the opposite of obedience would be sin. So in this spiritual inventory, as I try to figure out if I can be assured of blessing, I don't want to find any sin. I don't want to find sin because that would be not obedience, not Christian maturity. And then, well, I've got questionable salvation. To find sin is to find immaturity, and, and now I don't know what to think about myself. And then there's another question, that, well, how much obedience? I mean, I know that, I mean, I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. I'm, I'm, there's got to be some sin, so how much obedience? And so the answer often is, well, you need to provide a pr progressive, increasing pattern of obedience in your life. In other words, you look through the, the years of your Christian life, and you find less and less sin and more and more obedience. And usually the equation, algorithm, map stops there, okay? Look for a progressive pattern of obedience, less and less sin, more and more obedience. That's Christian maturity. And if you find that, rest assured you're blessed by God, okay? And if you don't find that, at best, it's kind of questionable. And so you start looking in the mirror. And you care because you feel God's hand of judgment on you. It's heavy. You feel like you're wasting away. And so you're frantically looking in the mirror, obsessively and constantly, trying not to find perfection, but you're trying to find that mark. I'm trying to find obedience and faithfulness to God, right? But then the question arises, well, is one instance of obedience enough? Does that pass the test? Because I found one you know, last Tuesday. Um, what about two instances? Is that enough? Or what about 27 instances? Or what about 74 instances of obedience? Is that enough? Does that pass the test? Well, no, I need a progressive pattern. I need to see that when I was 14 following the Lord, there was X amount of sin. And then when at 16 following the Lord, there was less sin. And then at 54, there was even less sin. And then at 74, there's progressive patterns of less and less sin and more and more obedience. But here's a problem. I found 42 instances of obedience through the years, but it seems like it's kind of this constant struggle. Like it's not really going away. I just feel like I'm struggling with the same thing and I can find instances of victory, but then also instances of failure. And honestly, I feel like I see a pattern of just stuckness. I just feel stuck with this stubborn sin. So I don't feel like that really passes the test. And then, even if you do pass the test and you find the progressive pattern of obedience, you start looking in the mirror and you're like, I kind of feel arrogant about this. And you're like, oh no, I think I just made myself worse. I feel like I just found new sin. I might have even just created new sin 
this is not going well for me. And the vicious cycle continues indefinitely down this road. You are left in a tailspin. I am left in a tailspin. How do I measure fully surrendered? I love when Jeff always says that. How do you measure surrender to the Lord? How do you measure that? Quantify that. Categorize it. How do you measure that? How do you measure progressive patterns of obedience? David, where does Bathsheba fit in a progressive pattern of obedience in your life? Peter, where does being called Satan by Jesus, stiff-arming the Gentiles, and denying Christ fit in the progressive pattern of obedience to know and be assured that you're blessed by God? The vicious cycle continues indefinitely. If we are honest in that pursuit, we find the opposite, don't we? We find more sin, not less. We find the very thing we set out not to find, we were told we shouldn't find, more sin. We are more sinful than we feared before we started. We find what author Ron Julian says, even the most mature saints in the golden years of their walk with God can succumb in a flash to their petty, selfish, destructive tendencies. Don't we know that? If you've been walking with the Lord for some time, you're like, man, I'm doing so well. This sin thing is easy. It's hard for some people. It's easy for me. And then all of a sudden you're like, whoa, where did that come from? I can't believe I said that. I can't believe I thought that. I can't believe I did that. I thought I was past that. We find in this inventory test what the Heidelberg Catechism said hundreds of years ago, a a core reformed catechism for us, that even the holiest men and holiest women have only a small beginning of obedience in this life. We set out to find just this trophy of progressive patterns of obedience, and we find I've barely started. That's not good for passing this test. Traveling this road to find assurance leaves us at best unsure because the road wants you to be silent. It's the end of the road. It's the point. It wants you to be silent, to have little to no sin to confess after you take inventory. And so this is where we end up. I don't know if I'm blessed. I don't know if I'm saved. We spend our days considering our own maturity, and we are left unsure at best. Little to no gladness in the Christian life, wasting away, baking in the sun. Now, this is not to say that we can't find encouragement in looking at and finding change in our lives. We can. As Christians, we can go, man, I've actually found obedience to Jesus. Praise God. Because if I told you what I was like before I knew Jesus— So you can take great encouragement when you do find the fruit of the Spirit in uh, in your life and when you do find obedience, but we don't root assurance of blessing in those things. Here's why this road is so dangerous in the end. We begin seeking to obey God to feel assured of our salvation, and we begin thinking this, if I obey, I am saved. If I obey, I am saved. I'm saved if I obey I'm saved if the sinner's prayer took. I'm saved if that baptism worked when I was an infant. I'm saved if I get the quadruple baptism of the Holy Spirit. I'm saved if I fill in the blank. Welcome to the heretical doctrine of salvation by self-righteousness. And we didn't even know we were going there. We, that was not the goal. And somehow, if I obey, I'm saved. Somehow, how did I end up here? If you're on that road, I've got good news for you. 
If you're on that road this morning, I've got good news for you. I've got Psalm 32 for you. David was trying to have no sin to acknowledge. He was trying to be silent, and then the lights turned on. And then in verse 5, he says this, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. We are told that a mark of salvation is seeing less and less sin, having less and less to confess. And then Psalm 32 says that a mark of salvation is seeing your sin. Seeing it. Seeing it in yourself and admitting it. We're told maturity is seeing less and less sin to confess. And then Psalm 32 says maturity is seeing your sin clearly and then admitting it. In Psalm 32, if you scan it and you see, um, this is what it means in verse 2 to have a spirit without deceit. This is what it means in verse 6 to be godly or to be righteous and upright in verse 11. It means to admit that you're not godly. That you're not, that you are a sinner, that you're unworthy of the kingdom. That's what, that, that's what those words mean in this psalm, in the context of Psalm 32. To be someone without deceit is to say, Lord, I admit, I deceive people. I'm not going to deceive myself about that. David realizes, the lights turn on, and he realizes that forgiveness comes through the admission of need forgiveness, how ironic is it of us that we think, I'll be assured that I have God's grace when I arrive at a place where I no longer need God's grace. I'll be assured that God has forgiven me of my sin when I come to a place where I no longer need forgiveness for sin. How ironic that that's the path that we often try to travel down. Again, author Ron Julian says, those who enter the kingdom of God will be those who admit they have no right to be there. Those who enter the kingdom will be those who admit, I've got no right to be here. 1 John 1 says, and we confessed it earlier, we said it earlier together, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. To put that in the, in the opposite, 1 John is saying, say you have sin. Admit it. Don't deceive yourself. Admit it. Say you're a sinner. Admit it. The path to assurance is looking in the mirror and calling yourself a real, bona fide, thoroughbred sinner, and knowing there's nothing you can do about it. You are a sinner. I acknowledge my sin to you, O Lord. I can't cover it. So what happened when David did this? Look again at verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Forgiveness is only for those that need it. Forgiveness is for real, bona fide, confirmed sinners, for those who can't cover their sin, can't atone for their own sin, which is all of us. So this morning, if you are here with a mountain of sins that you are aware of, if you are here this morning with ingrained, stubborn sins that you go, this has been here and this has been my struggle for decades. Good, I'm glad you know that because forgiveness is for you. Forgiveness is for the sinner. Forgiveness is for the guilty. Forgiveness is for the wicked in Christ alone through faith alone. Verse 10 sums this up. Look at verse 10. 
Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Here's what I expect to read in verse 10. What I expect to read is this. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. Of course, that just merely means the disobedient, right? Sinners. But love surrounds, well, the opposite. What would the opposite be? The obedient. That's what I expect to read. But it's just not what we read. We read steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Because wicked here in verse 10 is not merely saying a disobedient sinner. That's all of us. The wicked here is talking about the sinner who trusts himself or herself to cover and atone for their own sins. To do what David was trying to do, to deal with it themselves. The wicked here doesn't trust God, doesn't depend on God, doesn't hide in God. They preserve themselves, they deliver themselves, they rejoice in themselves, they cover their own sin, they deal with their own guilt. They seek to be righteous in themselves and their sorrows multiply as they languish under their guilt and under their stricken conscience. Never able to get away from that that back of their mind idea that, that is, I don't think your sins have been dealt with. I don't think you've covered them yet. So what's the opposite of wicked? The opposite of wicked here is verse five, I acknowledged my sin to you. I didn't cover my iniquity. I acknowledged I'm wicked. What's the opposite of wicked? Lord, I'm a real sinner, and I'm trusting you, and I'm trusting you with absolutely all of it, and steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts the Lord with their sin. Verse 1, really the climax of this psalm, says this, blessed is the one who has no transgression? No. Whose transgression is forgiven, Who has no sin? No. Whose sin is covered? Blessed is the man who has no iniquity? No. Against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Blessed are those who can say with the old hymn, well may the accuser roar of sins that I have done. I know them all and thousands more, and Jehovah the Lord knoweth none. I know my sins, I know many more than the devil knows. God knows none of them because he sees the righteousness of Jesus when he sees me. Assurance is not found in you. Assurance of blessing isn't found in you. It's not found in your righteousness. God's law will always find you out. If you look in the mirror as a Christian to take spiritual inventory, be prepared and rest assured you're still a sinner. God's law will always find you out. So assurance isn't in you. Your assurance of your salvation and of your blessing before God is in heaven, seated at the right hand of God. Your assurance is in heaven in the free righteousness of Jesus for you, received through faith alone, resting in Jesus, relying on Jesus alone. John Bunyan, in grace abounding to the chief of sinners, he recounts that one day he was walking through a field and he was burdened by his sin. Uh, he was, his conscience was just uh, stricken, seared. He, he was burdened by his sin, and ultimately he was burdened by his status before God, wondering, am I right with God? I mean, do, am I welcomed by God? Do I have his smile on me? 
And then he says, all of a sudden, this sentence came to my mind. He said, this sentence came to mind, thy righteousness is in heaven. I saw that it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor my bad frame that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself. I can't make my righteousness any better, and I can't make it any worse, because my righteousness is Jesus, the same yesterday, today, and forever. He said, my chains fell off, and I went home rejoicing for the grace and love of God. Be assured of how sinful you are. Be assured of how sinful you are, and be assured that in the Christian life, you're going to discover more, not less. You're going to discover more. Call yourself a real, bona fide sinner, and then look away from yourself and forget about yourself and look to Jesus for his righteousness, where his grace abounds. Only when you rest assured in the blessing of God in Jesus for you, only when that is settled, and as that assurance grows in your Christian life, only then will you run to God in prayer. Only then will you do what this psalm also talks about, which we don't have time to dive into. Only then will you run to God in prayer, find him your hiding place, find him to be the one that preserves you. Only then will you follow after him out of a love for him. Not like a, a mule, as the psalm says, that just follows after for some reward. No, out of love for him. Only then. That is how this psalm goes. That's how the logic flows. David found assurance in the blessing of God and then was able to run to him in confident prayer. Jesus lived for sinners. He died for sinners. He rose for sinners. His forgiveness and his grace and his steadfast love is only for sinners. And it's always free. It's only for sinners. So good news if that's you. And it's always free. So, we can say this with verse 11. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. Righteous in yourself? No way. Righteous in Jesus and because of Jesus? Absolutely. And shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Amen.